we're going to continue our series of Sermon on the Mount. Tonight we are week two, so we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. But before we start, try to get um, uh, the younger audience engaged a little bit into the lesson tonight, and the older audience as well. How many have ever wanted to change your name? Anybody? Have ever wanted to change your name? All right, if you wanted to change your name, what would you change it to? Let's start right there. Jocelyn? Fluffy Princess Potato. Okay, good luck. Violet? Um, Alyssa. Alyssa, okay. Gotcha, all right. Mia? What? Brianna, okay. Yes? Lucky, all right. <laughs> well, Metal World Peace. Already been done. Okay, already been done. Ellie? Sunny, with the chance of meatballs. No, I'm just kidding. Jenna? Princess. Princess. Sounds like a Nikki baby name. <laughs> never mind, never mind, never mind. Just thinking of something. Andrew? Zach. Okay, all right, that's short, cool. All right, say by the bell? Yeah, no? <laughs> no, it's just, it's for whoever. What? Metcalf. Metcalf. Changing your name to Metcalf. First name or last name? Last name, okay. Is it a hyphenated? No, 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 no. no. <laughs> Nate, this is interesting. I'm scared too. All right, stupid. Okay, very good. Aaron, Tony, Ethan. I just now forgot. That's a weird name. Uh, anybody else? Adults? Venetia, did you already say it? Marcus, two? Marcus, two? Yeah. <laughs> I'm saying Marcus the second, you know, you, he can, you can pronounce that. <laughs> Ladasha. Yeah, with that being said, so funny side note, funny sidebar on this one. It, it is an inside joke, and now let's be public. So when we were in the NICU with uh, Logan many years ago, uh, some of the nurses were telling us some crazy names that came in, uh, for people that were in there and, you know, had all kinds of babies and, you know, drug babies and all kind of stuff. Anyway, there was this one family, they wanted to name their daughter Ladasha, but how they spelled it was L-A-A. And that's how they pronounce it, Ladasha. So anyway, that's what Amanda wants to change her name to, La-Dash-A. <laughs> anyway, it's just funny, not funny. Anybody else? Anybody else change names? Yes. You've already had one. I don't care. You want another one? <laughs> wow. Thomas? Kip. Kip. Why? Kip oh. <laughs> fire in the hole. Man. Hey! Fire in the hole. Fire in the hole. He's like, Mom, I'm going to kill you when I get home. <laughs> Logan, backstory. We were asking people what they'd change their name to, and your mom told us what you would change your name to when you were younger. Fire in the hole. I like it. I like it. That's awesome. All right. Now it's just getting crazy. It's getting crazy. All right. Um, how easy is it to... Let's, start, let's ask this question. How easy is it to change something about you externally? 
pretty easy, pretty easy. All right, how many are good noticers? Anybody a good noticer? All right, very good. Let's put that to the test. Jocelyn, Mia, come on up here. Go ahead and just stand up here for just a second. All right, take a good look at these two lovely young ladies. That's all I'm going to say. Just take a good look at them. All right, Amanda, why don't you take them back? Take them back to that room. Go. All right, so we're going to put this to the test. Again, there's, there's a reason for all this sometimes. Um, what I'm going to have her do is change something externally about them and then bring them back out and see if you guys notice what was changed externally. Some of you guys will probably notice right off the bat. Some of you are like, I have no idea. I'm sure Amelia is going to know everything, right? <laughs> Grandma, why are you laughing? <laughs> uh, anyway, we ready? Nope. Still changing? There's a lot of changing to do, especially back in that room with those girls. A lot of makeup. It will take them a long time. Should have had. Oh, there we go. All right. Okay, let's just start with, uh, start with Jocelyn. What did Jocelyn change about herself? Anybody want to give it a Violet? I know. Do what? Took out her hair tie. Is that right? Yep. Or is that all? Okay, man, that was really good. Amelia, did you know that? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> Mia, did you change something about yourself? Did you? Yes, okay. She doesn't know. Uh, yes. The bow? Did you have a bow? Did you take it out? She doesn't even know what she changed about herself. She is her mother's child. All right, go back to your seat. Go back to your seat. Good job. Give him a great hand. Anyway, so the point of that was understanding that it's very easy to change externals, right? Very easy to change that. And a lot of times we notice those things. Oh, sorry, Ellie. We're, we're getting way out of hand tonight. Um, so glad you guys came on Wednesday night. The point I'm making is it's very easy to change externals. Sometimes it's more difficult to change internals, isn't it? Um, you know, the world, our culture is heavily pushing changing from the outside in. You know, changing your appearance, changing your dress. And it's very easy to do that. You know, if you want to get a makeover, you just you know, go somewhere and change your makeup or uh, you change your clothes and try to look different, get a different haircut, get a mustache instead of a beard, you know, whatever it is, we're trying to change certain things about us. But in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is trying to help us change from the inside out. And it's really, as Michael talked about there in the video, it's counterintuitive to our culture. And I want to ask a couple more questions that are a little bit deeper than what we just talked about. But here's the very first principle, if you want to write this down, kind of the main truth of the lesson tonight. If we are going to live, then we're going to lose. Again, it sounds great, right? Right off the bat when you think about it. If we're going to live, we're going to lose. Uh, most of us are like, man, yeah, that's awesome. I want to lose in life. But we're going to explain what exactly I'm talking about here in just a minute. But let me, I think I'm ringing just a little bit, Michael. Um, let, me, let me ask a question, because last week we started this series, and we talked about uh, the first few verses here in Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus sits down with his followers, his disciples, and there uh, kind of starts teaching some radical principles to him. And the very first principle we talked about last week 
was the importance of that spiritual bankruptcy, being bankrupt. And again, as he says in verse number three, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When you think about it right offhand, in our culture, poor is not fun. Poor in anything is not fun. Uh, We don't equate happiness and blessings to someone that is poor. We equate the exact opposite of blessings to someone that is poor. But Jesus comes right off the bat and says, hey, blessed are you or happy are you or uh, those that delight are actually bankrupt in their spiritual condition. And I I don't want to go too deep in this. Let me ask a question. As we talked about that lesson last week, if you remember, it teaches us that spiritual beggars will possess the kingdom of heaven. So here's the question. How does recognizing ourselves as a spiritual beggar or spiritually destitute how does that, or how should that, I guess I should say, affect the way we live each day? So in understanding what we talked about last week, and hopefully you remember what we talked about last week, how does understanding and recognizing ourselves as a spiritual destitute individual or spiritually bankrupt, how should that affect how we live each day? Anybody want to venture a guess? David? I should see you at church more often, Yes. Uh, that's one way, I guess we can say. Every day. I want to see you every... No, I don't want to see you every day, please. Um, that would just, no, never mind. Uh, <laughs> I, I get what he's saying. What else? How is seeing ourselves as spiritually bankrupt or spiritually destitute, how should that affect the way we live each day? Mike? Um, we, since, since we know that we're spiritually bankrupt, then we need to go to the source that can fill us up. Okay, that's good. Since we know we're spiritually bankrupt, go to the source that can fill us up each and every day. How else? What else? What else? Yes, Tyler. Make us humble. That's really good. Uh, Instead of being so prideful and full of ourselves and thinking we have it all together, realizing that without God, and really what we talked about last week, without Jesus, we are nothing, but with him we are everything. That's great. What else? Anybody else? Maybe one or two more? How should seeing ourselves as spiritually destitute, spiritually bankrupt, how should that affect the way we live each day? Anybody else want to venture anything? Michael? Yeah, being grateful of what? What was the part, part you just said after that? Okay. Yes, being grateful the fact that he still gave his grace, even the fact that before Christ, uh, deep and in, indebted to our sins and our sin nature. Anybody else? Maybe one more. David, another one. Yes, less judgmental, more understanding of other people's failures. Carmen, do you have something? Or? Yes. Uh, I think it could make us reflect more Jesus Yeah. Yeah, no, that, that's good. Um, it's really good. And let me ask another question that really kind of piggybacks off the first one. But in seeing ourselves as a spiritual beggar, spiritually destitute, spiritually bankrupt, how then can we cultivate that identity more? Because really, this Sermon on the Mount is a series on identity. It's changing how we view ourselves and what Christ wants to tell us of who we are and what he wants us to be. So how can we then cultivate this identity more in our lives on a daily basis? Kind of goes off with the first question. Anybody? Marcus? Surrender. Surrender. That's good. That's good. Yes, Mary? 
That's good. Living for him, fulfilling his purpose. Again, it's not about our life, and we're going to go deeper into that thought in the weeks to come. Again, especially in our American culture, it's all about us, isn't it? It's all about what we want, and Jesus is flipping the script, and it's not about what you think you need. It's about what I'm going to show you, and it's not about the doing. It's about being so that you can do. Be who you're supposed to be so that you can do what I want you to do. Uh, Sometimes we get that backwards sometimes. Even in the church culture, it's all about for some people, the do, 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 kind of that legalistic approach that we talked about on Sunday, but then people never understand who they are. In Christ, they never understand their identity. Uh, Anybody else, how can we, understanding this, how can we cultivate this identity more and more in our lives? Mandy, got anything? Um, Oh yeah, she was dealing with the beast. Anybody else? Anybody else? David. Ask God for direction more often. Ask God for direction more often. That's good. I want you to think about these things, and I'm going to ask questions like this in in the weeks to come because I really want, again, it's not just this series, but I want all of these series to really be helpful to us. And again, it's a a tough subject as we're going to get beyond Beatitudes in the weeks to come and some some tough teachings that Jesus gives us. And I really want this to be uh, something that is applied to our lives, not just another message that we hear in one ear, out the other. Yeah, maybe I'll take some of those principles and jot them down and I'll, I'll, I'll get it when I need to. All of us need to learn to live this way. So I really want just us to think about this. Um, you know, as we talked about, and it was even talked about in the video, real life begins when we come to the end of ourselves. And again, it's counterintuitive, it's counterculture, but it begins when we receive, not just try to achieve our identity. Life begins when we lose our pre-existing self and realize that, uh, and it was talked about, it might have been Mary that just said it, but realizing that we are nothing without Jesus. Apart from Jesus, without Jesus, we are nothing. And coming to the end of ourselves is really about finding Him and about finding true life. So when you think about this series, The End of Me, really, I mean, you can cut out the me and put at the end of me, we find Jesus, and we find true life. We find the life that he wants us to live, and that's what I really want to get across, and that's what I want you to understand, not just tonight, but last week, tonight, the weeks to come. We're trying to come to the end of ourselves, to realize that this life is not just about me. It's not about my pursuit. It's not about uh, what brings happiness in my life or what I'm trying to achieve. And again, it goes so counterintuitive to our culture because our culture is all about you pursue what's best for you. You be you, right? Do what you want to do. Be the best version of you that you can be. Jesus is saying, that's not what it's about. Be who I say that you should be. That's where happiness comes into your life, and that's where you find joy. Uh, there was a group of guys who once bet Ernest Hemingway $10 that he couldn't come up with a story using only six words. For him, he said, challenge accepted. He then pulled out a napkin and wrote the following story on it. Six words. He said, for sale, baby shoes, never worn. For sale, baby shoes, never worn. Now, how many with saying that immediately think of a story in your mind? Anybody? What stories do you think of? I'm kind of switching gears right now, but what story do you think of? Let's get some adults more than just kids. Uh, For sale, baby shoes, never worn. What what comes to your mind? There's a lot of things that race in my head when I think about that. Debbie, do you have something? What? Lost without 
Loss of a child, possibly, yes. I mean, it, 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 it leaves it open to our imagination, right? For what? Oh. We'll explain it to you later. Um, <laughs> it's not surprising there. Um, anyway, your imagination can go, go crazy. And, and what Debbie was saying, I, I thought the same thing when, when I, I read those six words, that maybe they lost a child. And because they lost a child, the baby shoes are for sale. Uh, you know, and then it, it evokes in your imagination, okay, I wonder what happened to the child, right? Now, maybe that happened, maybe that didn't happen. Again, he was just trying to tell a story, write a story, in, in using just six different words. So there's a purpose for this as well. If you have your notes tonight, there's a blank there, and it says, write your story. And what I want you to do, just for a minute or so, I want you to use only six words, and I want you to tell your story. Easy, right? Piece of cake. Tell your story, write your story using only six words. Six words. Go. Easy. Come on. Piece of cake. Some of you are like, I don't know. I'm not going to do it. Try. Just try. Your story. Six words. Six words. Anybody done? Justin, you done? You done? Jocelyn? All right. I went to the thrift store. Okay. That's your story. That's your life. You lived in the thrift store? I went to the thrift store. Okay. Interesting. Colin? I like Minecraft and virtual reality. Isn't that seven? Oh, Minecraft is one? Okay. Gotcha. Good job. Yes, Venetia? I'm a child of God. That's good. That's good. You got to have one spiritual person in this church. We know you're not. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yes. I got saved on Okay, just making sure. Yes, Amelia. Jesus is my life story forever. Jesus is my life story forever. I like it. Good job, David. That's good. It's like an Ernest Hemingway approach there. That's, that's, that's pretty good. It's pretty good. Mary, do we want to know? Okay, okay. I was trash, now I'm gold. Man, I like that. I like that. Jenna? I got saved in my bed. Good job. I'm just making sure you guys got six words. Okay, anybody else? Julie? I was lost, but then found. You sure you were found? With that hair? I'm just kidding. I love the hair. It's like the Princess Leia type, almost. Anyway, uh, Aaron? I am Iron Man and Tony Stark. I am Iron Man and Tony Stark. He is struggling with his identity, doesn't really know who he is. Um, encourage him and his parents to go back through the Ephesians series on that one. Anybody else? Six words, tell your story. Andrew, you got something? Nope. All right, that's, that's just one word. Good job. Uh, anybody else? You can't do six words. Five? <laughs> oh, I was thinking of my own story, and again, it's tough. I, I like David's. I like several of yours. Um, you know, my six words were this. Losing is only a new beginning. 
Now, you think about our story. It's hard to put it in just six words. But for the six words that I chose, it was kind of going with this lesson tonight and really the series. Losing is only a new beginning. And I think about that in my own life because in my life, I have suffered loss. Who has suffered loss in your life? I'm not even talking about loss of a loved one in the sense of death. All of us probably have experienced loss in some form and fashion. So for me, in my, in my life, in my story, a big part of it is understanding that losing isn't the end, right? It's just the beginning sometimes. For some people, losing is it. It's everything. Uh, I've lost, so I am nothing now. But again, goes back to this counterintuitive thing that Jesus is trying to teach us, that losing yourself isn't the end. You're actually finding what life is really all about. And again, he is turning another thing inside out in an upside down world in the midst of loss and deep disappointment. When it feels like we are coming to the end of ourselves, he turns the page and shows us a new story of hope and redemption. And it's an amazing thing that we see. Uh, The Beatitudes really are a self-portrait of Christ. They describe qualities that every Christian should exhibit. And last week, we started with that upside-down concept that in order to be who you are, you must first be broken. You know, we, we broke that pot. And understanding that you think about it, you break the pot, it, it's not beautiful. But Jesus wants us to be broken so that we can be whole, so that he can create that new identity with, within us. We want to be made whole, most of us, without ever being broken, but that's not the reality of life. And Jesus starts off in a way that is very paradoxical. Uh, he's calling his followers to rejoice in our spiritual bankruptcy because in realizing that, that we are broken to be made whole. And the first um, beatitude is very foundational upon the rest. It's a game changer in the sense that this is the most important thing in coming to Christ and salvation. And as I mentioned last week, no one ever comes to Christ for salvation in pride, thinking that they are everything. They come to Christ for salvation, realizing that without them, him, they are nothing, that they need him. No person in history has ever come uh, pridefully to Jesus and save me, do your best. No, they come humbly petitioning, asking him to save them because they've realized that they are a wretch of an individual and they are worthless without Christ. But with Christ, they have been made new. They've been changed and things are so much different, so much better. And as we continue on, blessed, verse number four, are they that mourn. Again, all of these beatitudes, and many of us have heard these before, but again, they're, they're so counterculture because our culture wouldn't say that, you know what, you're going to have a great life if you just constantly mourn. <laughs> you know, we think of mourning, we think of crying and being upset. And he says, first of all, blessed are the poor in spirit, being spiritually bankrupt, spiritually destitute, Uh, you're going to have the kingdom of heaven. That's okay. Doesn't make sense, God. Then blessed are they that mourn for they shall be comforted. Now, again, you have to understand the audience and who Jesus is talking to in this specific group. Sitting down in this first century mountain, there is an age of infant mortality, which means that a lot of the infants that that were born back in those days died. They didn't live very long. Uh, They had short lifespans back then. They died of hunger, uh, uh, had all kinds of disease. They had national humiliation. And Jesus is saying these words, 
Blessed are they that mourn. And I doubt there's that one guy in the back of the, of the audience that's like, yeah, go mourning. I, I love it, right? <laughs> yeah, this is awesome. Go Jesus. I, I'm sure it's not like that. Mourning rules. <laughs> uh, again, this, this goes beyond paradox. It's as, if, it's as if Jesus is saying, happy are the sad. <laughs> I like what B- William Barclay says about this, a, a commentator. He says, the Greek word for mourn used here is the strongest use or strongest word for mourning in the Greek language. It is dis- defined as the kind of grief which takes such a hold that it cannot be hidden. It is not only the sorrow which brings an ache to the heart, it is the sorrow which brings the unrestrainable tears to the eyes. How many have ever, we, we've all been here, but you've mourned so much that it's just brought tears to your eyes and you can't stop? I think many of us have been there, right? Now, I think we're, I don't know what this is. It's very annoying. Sorry. Stupid ringing. Um, anyway, um, this is about, it's not talking about mourning a loss of a job or necessarily the loss of a loved one. What this is, it's a mourning over our sin, our sin as Christians. It's about being deeply sorry for what we've done and how we've hurt God. Now again, remember if you've been saved, remember the moment of salvation. You realize that you were a sinner, right? You were a wretch of an individual. You were worthless, so to speak. So you came, and maybe you came crying. It's not about an emotional thing, but I'm sure there were some of you, when you got saved, you you were crying, right? Because you realized who you were, and that I can't continue on this path. Something needs to happen. Something needs to change, and you saw yourself for the individual you were, you saw your sin for what it, what it was. And the word mourn is, it's in the present and continuous sense in the Greek. It is something, listen, that persists even after salvation. You see, again, the world is trying to change the man from the outside in, but Jesus is trying to change from the inside out. And what we're going to talk about tonight, and I'm, I'm not going to try to, to belabor this, but here, here's the, the first point. What Jesus is saying is this, rejoice in your deep grief over sin. Rejoice in your deep grief over sin. Now, the first two Beatitudes find a similar theme from Isaiah chapter 61. And we're not going to read it for sake of time, but go ahead and jot it down if you want. Isaiah 61, the first three verses, kind of talk about that and illustrate these points. It talks about the poor in spirit and those who mourn are paralleling the poor and those who mourn in Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 through 3. In that passage... Israel is brokenhearted and mourning in ashes and despair over their sin. And the second beatitude, mourning over sin, naturally flows from the first of being poor in spirit. It's like saying, you know, it's paradoxical. It's it's almost like saying wealthy are the poor and happy are the sick. But we can't twist this one around to what Jesus is saying. Mourning here is in this context an act, listen to this, it's an act of repentance and sorrow over our sin and sinful conditions. It's seeing God for who he really is and seeing us for who we really are. Now, again, and I want us to understand this. Think of the moment you got saved. 
Think of that point. Maybe it was recent for some individuals in this room. Maybe it was several years ago, many years ago, many decades ago. You came to the point of realization that I'm not saved. And if I don't get saved, I'm on my way to hell. I need to be saved so that God will uh, bring me into heaven and, and I, can, I can rejoice with him in paradise. But the moment you got saved, you realize how awful an individual you were. And the point I'm trying to make is the fact that, you think about it, just as seriously as you took sin before you were saved, the same token must also be taken with sin after we're saved. But what often happens, and again, we'll use our American culture, we have made a mockery of sin, haven't we? Especially in American culture. Just watch TV shows, watch movies, there is a mockery of sin. People like to make fun of certain sins and certain things that, that happen in life and, and say it's, it's not that big of a deal. Well, <laughs> sin is a very big deal. Uh, again, our culture so much so has legalized sin. Some of the things that they have done. You know, I, I read that in the Greek New Testament, they had over 33 different words for sin. But our society likes to remove things and challenge them challenge things that convict them. I even read that a few years ago, uh, the Oxford Junior Dictionary, having long since scratched out many of those words, uh, the 33 words, they tried to make a clean sweep by removing the word sin as well. Supposedly, it was an old, decrepit word that now sat in the corner of the vocabulary parlor, rocking in its chair and uh, talking about the old days, but nobody paid attention. Nobody wanted to talk about sin for being what it was, sin. You know, instead, here's what we do. We like to change the wording, don't we? Instead of calling people out and understanding that, hey, what you did was wrong, it was sin, here's what we do. They just made a mistake. They just they slipped up a little bit. It doesn't have the same connotation, does it? No, it doesn't. Just a little boo-boo, right? <laughs> it's just... Just a little white lie. You know, we, we like to, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Downplay. I mean, that's one way we can say it. We like to downplay sin for what it is. We don't call it what it is. I mean, even, even terminology today. You know, you think about uh, the Bible, you know, some of, the, some of the things in the Bible. I mean, it talks about uh, drunkenness and fornication, and um, it talks about uh, homosexuality. Those words are a lot stronger and harsher than the words that we have in our culture, aren't they? And again, what we like to do, we don't like to talk about sin because sin's too preachy. Sin, talking about sin, it, it meddles. So again, you know, it's, it's just an unfortunate choice that someone made. Look, and I don't want you to raise your hand, but many of us have done that. You know, it just made an unfortunate choice. It just slipped up a little bit. Or, you know, we even do things like this. You know, it's just a disease. They can't help it. Again, I'm, I'm trying not to go too deep into this tonight. But let me, let me give an illustration. If I were to step on your foot, more than likely, as I'm walking by, it's probably an accident. Maybe it's because I'm clumsy. <laughs> I walk by and I, I step on your oh, I'm sorry. I did not mean to do that. But if there was something I didn't like, and all of a sudden I, like, I, I walk by in Jones and I'm, I just stomp on his foot, that's not an accident, is it? <laughs> right? Like, I, I was maliciously and, you know, deliberately, you know, saying, you know what, I am going to stomp on your foot as hard as I can. 
you know, that was no mistake. It's a mistake if I, you know, kind of trip and, and didn't see him there and I, I stepped on his foot on an accident, that happens. But if I'm deliberately doing something, that's no mistake. And, and what I'm trying to say is that right now then we're in that sin territory, right? You know, it's an accident if I, if I slip up, if I actually accidentally make a mistake and, and step on his foot. But if I deliberately do something, that's wrong. That's sin. And that's what sin is. You know, uh, one of the Greek definitions, it's missing the mark, but really it's deliberately making a choice that we know is wrong in our heart. And how many here have ever done that? We have deliberately made a choice that we know is wrong in our heart, but we don't care. I've done that many times over. I know something is wrong, and I still do it. But again, even our kids, I didn't mean to do it. What? But we're no different as adults. We knew what we were doing. We knew we were trying to get away with something, but we uh, forgot about what sin is. And again, what, what the point I'm trying to make is that we take sin too lightly today. We didn't take sin lightly when we got saved, did we? We understood who we were. And the reality is that we should not take sin lightly after we get saved. It's not about how do I view someone else's sin. It's very easy to look at other people and like, man, I can talk about all the sins in this individual's life. It's not about that. What we need to do is view our own sin. And that's really what Jesus is getting at here. When he says, blessed are they that, that mourn, it's not about, you know, I'm just crying because I'm upset, something bad happened to me. It's understanding that, man, I have messed up. I have more than messed up. I have sinned against the holy God. And don't raise your hand, but do we still do this? When we truly mess up, when we truly miss the mark, when we truly sin, are we that stricken deeply with our grief over what we've done? If we're not, then that's part of the problem. And that's what Jesus is saying here, that we need to understand. I think of several passages in the Old Testament. Uh, let me turn there quickly. Uh, uh, Psalm 32, I think that's one of them. Go ahead and turn back there. Psalm 32, I think I have the right one. I'm kind of going off memory right now. Uh, Psalm 32, uh, yeah, I think this is one of the, the confessions of David. You know, there are many times in my life where I've memorized some of these psalms because David was very repentant over his sin. It wasn't like, you know, like our kids sometimes, hey, I'm sorry, trying to get out of trouble. They're not really repentant. They're just sorry that they got caught, <laughs> right? And so are we sometimes. But I think of David, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, into whose spirit there is no guile. When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through the roaring all the day long. For day and night the hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of the summer. Uh, verse number five, I acknowledge my sin unto thee. You know, it was so heavy upon him, the sin, the iniquity that he did. He didn't want to hide it anymore. He wanted to confess it before a holy God. Uh, turn to, is it Psalm 51? I believe it is. Uh, one of David's great prayers. Um, yeah, Psalm 51. Uh, you know, I love this Psalm where, where David, uh, his sin is before God. God knows what he did. And that's the thing. We, you know, we try to cover our sins and those that are married, uh, we can easily cover things from our spouse, but you can't cover it from God. Kids, we try to cover things from our parents, but you can't cover it from God. Just ask Jonah. Uh, you know, he tried to run from God and God found him. But uh, the, the point I'm making here is this with, with David, he says, Hey, I was caught. 
And as you read in your Bible, it says, the chief musician, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came unto him uh, after he had gone uh, into Bathsheba, after he had sinned with Bathsheba, he realizes that what he did was wrong, that he sinned against the holy God. And what does he do? God, have mercy upon me. According to thy loving kindness, according to thy multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. You see, as I read this, and I've read this many, many times in my life, as I have read this psalm, what I see is an individual that is deeply, deeply in regret for what he has done. And he is trying his best to be repentant. Not because he got caught, because he realized that he sinned, he missed the mark against the holy God. And God takes sin very seriously. And as he says in verse number three, for I acknowledge my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Hey, what I did was wrong. I acknowledge that what I did was wrong. It wasn't just a mistake. I messed up. I sinned against you, against thee. Thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and clear when thou judgest. And then he goes on, behold, I was shaped in iniquity and sin and my mother conceived me. But verse number seven, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. I can just imagine David as he's writing this, pouring his heart out to God, crying and begging, God, please forgive me. And I have, I have quoted this passage many times in my own life. When I, I did something knowingly that was wrong and God convicted me of it, and I'm thankful that God still convicts me. And I'm, thank, I'm thankful for the conviction that, that God has for his children. And the times that it might not even been me getting found out, but realizing after I did something, and that's usually how it works, right? As soon as you do something, man, that was stupid, right? <laughs> Why did I do that? And there's been times where I just kind of brushed it off, and maybe you have too. You know what? It's my kind. I don't really want to hear about that now. Holy Spirit's trying to do something. Yeah, forget that. But there have been many times where I've like, man, I was sorrowful. I was in mourning because I realized that what I did was not just to me, to, to my wife, to another individual's, it was to a holy God. And that's, that's what I see with David here, that he is crying, he is pouring his heart out to God. God, forgive me, wash me, make me clean. Make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. I want to find rejoicing again. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence. Take not the Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the, the joy of thy salvation and uphold me with thy free spirit. You know, this, this is what Jesus is trying to get across here. Blessed are they that mourn, that realize that their sin is more than just an accident, a slip-up that their sin is serious before a holy God. And the, and the point I want to make, and I don't want to belabor this, but the, the same realization we had when we came to Christ for salvation about our sin should be the same realization we have today. But many of us don't, sadly. Because, and I'm, I'm just as guilty as, as the next person. You know, we hang out with certain people and, you know, their lifestyle is not the lifestyle. Not not saying we shouldn't hang out with certain people, but their lifestyle is not conducive to Christian living. And we know that. And we just kind of brush it off. It's not that big of a deal. But then it starts infiltrating in our life. It starts carrying it over. And then, eh, 
think of it this way. Again, and, and I've done this many times over. You know, you watch the TV show. Uh, Nate is really good at pointing these things out to us sometimes. You watch a TV show and, you know, it has some words that are questionable that probably shouldn't be watching. And then all of a sudden, like, he comes in. You shouldn't be watching that. They said that word. That's a bad word. Go to, go to bed. Kid, go to bed. <laughs> because in my mind, and sometimes in my wife's mind, it's, it's not that big of a deal. And look, I know if we do it, you do it as well. It's not that big of a deal. But again, it's, it's what are we feeding our mind? The more we feed our mind with that, you know what's going to happen? It's going to eventually come out. And it's come out in my life. Maybe it's not even necessarily a bad word, but maybe it's the kind of talk, uh, even, even in uh, you know, television or a TV show or, or a movie where they are treating people unkindly. And I'm seeing that. It's not that big of a deal. It's, it's funny. It gets a lot of laughs, right? So I'm going to treat other people that way. Well, that's not how a Christian should behave. So the, the, again, understanding that Jesus is telling us to, to mourn, to be sorrowful over our sin. But it doesn't stop there because he says, first of all, rejoice in your deep grief over sin. Again, it seems counterintuitive, but then he finishes off, for, their, um, for they shall be comforted. So rejoice over your deep grief of sin. Why? Because God will comfort you. You see, the reward for mourning is comfort. And I know it sounds strange, but understand something very important. Look who is doing the comforting. It's Jesus. It's when we go to him in our sin, and even though we get saved, and you know, again, in God's eyes, he does not view us as a sinner anymore. We've talked about that before. But as a saint, we still sin. That flesh is still within us. So it's still coming to God, understanding that we uh, have sinned against the holy God and asking Jesus to forgive us. And you know what he does? He does forgive us. And that's the great thing about our heavenly father. And that's the comfort that we get from our heavenly father, from Jesus. This is a sense of deeper mourning, but more profound comfort. You know, it's a poor illustration, but you know, imagine the comfort this way. Imagine a child on a playground and you know they're they're playing some sport let's say let's say it's football and they're with all their friends or maybe in an actual game of football and all of a sudden uh, they just get pummeled <laughs> you know something happens to them one of their uh, the opposing um, uh, members of the other team just pummels them i mean really beats them up and they're really hurting they're limping and they're over there and all of a sudden from the stands comes their favorite athlete and they come over to check on them hey are you okay to make sure they're all right. I mean, how cool would that be for the kid? That'd be pretty awesome. Now, it's a poor illustration, but our Heavenly Father, that's what He does. He comes to us to comfort us, to help us, to guide us. You know, we have something better than a best-known athlete to check on us. God, our loving Father and our Savior, is right there comforting us and making sure that we're okay. That's incredible. You see, when we sin, we cry out for forgiveness, or we should cry out for forgiveness. And the awesome thing is that God will forgive us. Look, kids can run to their parents for comfort, and they do, but as a Christian, we have someone greater that we can run to. Mourning isn't dwelling on how pathetic we are. Godly sorrow is dwelling. It's not dwelling on how bad we are, but dwelling on God and what our sin is doing to God. Worldly sorrow hates the consequences of sin. Godly sorrow hates the sin. Look, these Beatitudes are a self-portrait of Christ. They describe qualities that every Christian should have. 
And the great paradox here is this, and it's the, it's the closing truth, and I want to give a story as I close it up. But we are wounded to be healed. Last week, we are broken to be whole, but we are wounded to be healed. Jesus wants to heal us. He wants to comfort us. And he is there. And it's about living a life controlled not by the flesh, but by the Spirit and allowing the Spirit to indwell within the believer and comfort the believer. I want to share a quick story, and hopefully it kind of wraps it all up. There was an indi- or a couple individuals, their name were Dick and Elizabeth Peterson. They were happily married and enjoying life, and one day she was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. Dick knew she was um, going to have a tough road and a tough journey. What he didn't realize was that he would come to know more of Jesus than he ever thought possible. As the intruder invaded his wife's body, it was as if it invaded him as well. He watched her move from a cane to a walker and onto a wheelchair. Every setback was a setback for him as well. It was their setback. His life was dramatically affected by her increasing needs. Together they realized that they were utterly out of control. As their lives spiraled more and more into devastation, there was only one path, the one set by disease, and it grew narrower and narrower. They prayed for healing and but with every ounce of faith they had, their family prayed, their church prayed, they heard of miracles and wondered if God might have a miracle for, for him. And if he didn't, why, I mean, why not? Why, why couldn't he? The questions themselves were a form of suffering, but there was something else they had to admit, a possibility that they had never considered. Maybe something wasn't just being done to them, but for them. What a shocking, outlandish, unexpected thought. One day, Elizabeth asked her husband, did, did it really take all of this to teach me that my soul is more important to God than my body? Her husband asked God, was this the cost of teaching me compassion? They had thoughts, insights, and aha moments they had never anticipated, all of them concerning the ways of God. And as they prayed for Elizabeth to get a hold uh, of her life, it occurred to them that God cared a lot more about her experiencing a new life, a deeper life, a wiser life. You see, they prayed for change on the outside when God was more concerned about change on the inside. They prayed for their desires and realized more and more that God answered in terms of their needs. As Dick shares, the intruder, the ugly disease is still in their home, still unwelcome, still making new demands every day, still teaching precious lessons unavailable any other way about submission, dependence, service, and any kind of love that Paul described in 1 Corinthians 13. You see, there is nothing life can throw at us that God can't use to draw us nearer to him. The tears bring their own focus. They begin to make the intruder look strangely like a guest. When disaster comes, we can't see anything bigger than what we've lost. But the truth is, God more than fills that space. We begin to see that he is not just filling that space, but spaces we didn't even know we had. Everyone experiences loss. Everyone in this room has experienced loss. Everyone mourns. But those who follow Jesus find that their pain is not wasted. There is blessing that seems totally illogical. It requires climbing to the bottom of the deepest pit without a flashlight, venturing far into the uh, deepest, darkest place. But the blessing is there. 
and it's worth everything because it's here when we come to the end of ourselves where we find Jesus and we find true life in him. And as we've started it out, Jesus is starting this sermon. Blessed are the poor, the destitute, the spiritually bankrupt, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Realizing that without Jesus, we are nothing. We are broken to be whole. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. We are wounded to be healed. Again, it doesn't seem to make sense, but this is exactly the lesson that Jesus is trying to teach us. Stay with us. We're going to go a lot deeper into the next couple of weeks as we continue to jump into this. And again, many of us have heard lessons on the, on the Beatitudes, but there are a lot of other deeper lessons and applications that we'll get to in the coming verses in the coming weeks. Let's go ahead and pray.